You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by lead pastor Benjamin Emery. It's great to see you. Welcome. My name is Benjamin, if I haven't met you. And I'm excited, as nervous as some of you may be, to be talking about marriage, talking about God's design for marriage. So if you haven't picked up your Bible, please pick one up. And we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. This is our, uh, we have three more messages after this, and then we'll be through the book of Ephesians. I'm going to break this sermon up into three parts. First, we're going to dive into the world of marriage when Paul was writing this. Then we're going to look at God's glorious design for marriage for the husband and the wife. And then we're going to look at and, and wrestle with why isn't this actually happening in most marriages in 2021 in the West. And you may be single here and you may be asking yourself, well, I don't have anything to learn from this. I'm single. Well, I would encourage you to pay close attention. This isn't just for married people. This is for single people as well because you're probably in one of three of these categories. You're planning to be married or you'd like to be married and therefore you want to study what your part in this marriage relationship will be. And it's also a good indicator of the kind of spouse you want to be looking for. Also, even if you're not planning to ever get married, guess what? If you're a Christian, we are in we are encouraged and commanded to be involved in other brothers and sisters' lives. And so you're most likely going to be involved in Christian married people's lives. And so you can encourage them and mentor them when you know what it is God is asking them to do. And the third reason, if you're single, you should pay attention is because God is going to lay out to you not only his desire of marriage, but just how much he loves his church. And so that should be an encouragement to you. And I also realize that although Paul is addressing a, a husband and a wife who are following Christ, that isn't necessarily the way it is for everyone here. Maybe you're married, but you don't have a husband or a wife who's following Christ. Well, I still encourage you that God isn't going to hold you responsible for what they do or don't do, but only for what you do. And he wants to encourage you today to be the best husband or to be the best wife that you can. And so we have been building off a few ideas that we're going to carry on because this is Paul's letter. And so it's not like he just started a new chapter. No, he's carrying on his thoughts. One of those thoughts we've been looking at is that we don't, as Christians, uh, look and operate in the world based on our feelings. Because our feelings can be deceptive. And that love we've been looking at is not a feeling. Love is an action. And so as we're building on that, now we're going into marriage, which you aren't necessarily always going to feel good about, and which is demonstrated not by the words or the emotions that you have, but by the way we act. And so let's ask God to help us. Lord, we can say that marriage is probably the most complex relationship that we have. Sometimes it can be the greatest, that's the way you designed it to be, the greatest human interaction that we have all around this earth, but often it can be the most painful. 
And Lord, maybe some of us are hoping that our spouse is going to listen and, and pay real close attention because they have a lot to learn. I pray that wouldn't be our heart's desire, but that we would look and say, am I doing what Christ has asked me to do? And am I willing to be willing to say I'm wrong and to change? Only you can do that by the Holy Spirit showing us where we are needing to change. Then only you can give us the desire and the follow-through to actually carry it out. And so I pray that you would help me simple man to talk about this great thing you've created called marriage. Amen. So I want to introduce you to the world, first of all, that Paul is writing to. The world of marriage in 60 AD, that is when we think he wrote this letter. What can we say about the world of marriage at that time? which Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking to this church in Ephesus, a Greek city, to Gentile Christians, Greek Christians. Well, what was it like for a Jew, first of all? Paul was a Jew. He knew what marriage was supposed to be. He was an ex-Pharisee, and so he was schooled in the laws of marriage at the time. So what was it like? Well, we could say that marriage, or historians would say that marriage in 60 AD was a great time of peril for the Jewish person. In fact, historians would say that Jewish girls were afraid and refusing to get married in many circumstances if they had the ability to refuse it because their position as wife was so unstable. That there was so much fear about what was going to happen to them in this era that they would rather stay single and in some cases live in poverty than be treated as they often were. To the Jewish woman, it's very much like it would be to be married in a Muslim marriage or a Hindu marriage. A woman's value was extremely low. In those days, a a common prayer, historians tell us, for the Jewish man was this. He would thank God that he wasn't a Gentile, that he wasn't a slave, and that he wasn't a woman. A woman was not a person, but a thing. Uh, She had no legal rights. This is not always the way it was, and it was not the way God designed it to be. But, as often men do, they had interpreted it and and liberalized it, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and taken it to extremes it was never meant to go. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 says, If a man marries a woman, but she becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he may write her a divorce certificate, hand it to her, and send her away from the house. And by meaning send her away from the house, it was either send her to her parents' house or send her into poverty, into the streets, because there was no social systems like we have now. A woman couldn't just go out and get a job and purchase a house like she could now. And so, in its original Hebrew meaning, it was evident what indecent meant. It meant if she was involved in sexual immorality, if she was committing adultery, then that was reason to divorce. But that was the only reason to divorce. Until rabbis started doing what often preachers start to do, taking a verse and twisting it out of a context and using it for their own personal gain. One of those rabbis was Rabbi Hillai. He said, when we have his writings, he said that 
you were, uh, that a woman was indecent if she spoiled a man's dinner by putting uh, too much salt on his food, if he, she walked in public uncovered, if she talked to men in the streets, if she spoke disrespectfully to her husband's parents, if she was troublesome or quarrelsome, you could divorce her. And men were taking advantage of that. Another rabbi, Rabbi Akabai, interpreted this as if a woman, if a man finds another woman more attractive than his wife, displeasing, then he could get rid of her and get a new wife. And uh, the process was extremely easy. All he had to do was go to a rabbi and have him write out uh, a correct bill of divorce, take two witnesses, hand it to her, give her back her diary, and she was out. That was the Jewish world of marriage. But it is even worse in the Greek cities to which he is writing to. In Ephesus, as we talked about a few sermons ago, prostitution was an essential part of life. Uh, a fourth century Greek uh, statesman and, and very well uh, documented man, uh, Demiathus, says this. We have prostitutes for our daily needs. We have concubines for the sake of our daily cohabitation. And we have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and having a faithful guardian over our household affairs. Socrates, that famous philosopher, said this, if there was anyone whom we could entrust more serious matters of our lives to, it was our wives. But if there was anyone we would talk less to, it was our wives. Greek culture, Greek life, made male and female companionship essentially impossible. To make matters worse, there was no legal process for divorce. A man would just on a whim decide he wanted a divorce in Greek culture, and he would do it, giving her back again her dowry or the money that, that the parents had given him to secure his daughter's future. And so Paul writes to Greeks who are now Christians living in a Greek city, but he's writing from Rome in prison in the biggest and most influential city in the world. And it was even worse in Rome. Seneca the Younger, a first century Roman philosopher, he was alive at the time of Paul's writing this. We have his writings. He says that women were married to be divorced and divorced to be married in that culture. He writes that Roman women did not typically uh, keep track of the dates by numbers, but they typically kept track of the dates by the last name of their current husband. So Smith, five. Another uh, great historian we know of, Jerome, tells us that in Rome, he met a woman who had been married 20 to 23 different husbands, and she herself was her husband's 21st husband. So this is the background. This is the world that Paul is going to unleash through the power of the Holy Spirit, these words to us. And so we may think that these weren't controversial words at the time. These were like nothing the world had ever seen. He was about to unleash some commandments to husbands and wives that went totally contrary to everything the world had ever known. And yet, as he introduced this new purity, this new fidelity, this new relationship for the married life, it would look to cleanse and change the world. Nations, economies, families would be forever changed in the greatest way they could. And so, 
we have five commands for the husband and one command for the wife. Now, I want to deal with the men first. I want us to look at the men's part because sometimes when we hear that S word, that dirty S word, we in the 21st century can put our backs up. I'm not doing that. So before we look at that word, that S word, I want us to see just what is us God calling us to men because it's a big challenge, but it's a beautiful challenge. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We get to be Jesus, men. Wives get to be Jesus, too. They get to play Jesus. We'll talk about that later. But we get to play Jesus. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sometimes people say, we need more men in Christian men in politics. We need more Christian uh, men in, as teachers. We need more Christian men as business owners. But I would say the number one thing we need right now men to do is to start leading and loving their homes. We need Christian men to lead and love in their homes. It's the kind of love, this kind of love that in the Greek is agape love. It's the the biggest kind of love. It's the most far-reaching kind of love. It's the most sacrificial kind of love. It's the strongest kind of love that Paul is referencing. Sure, husbands are the head of the family, but they're also supposed to be the heart of the family. It's the kind of love that balances perfectly affection and authority. If you have a man who has nothing but affections, he's a sappy sentimentalist that everybody rolls over. But if you have a man that has all authority and no affection, then he's a tyrant. No, Paul is calling us men to have that agape love, that sacrificial love. That's the first one. Husbands are to love sacrificially. Jesus loved his church, not in a way that he could just get for himself and put his feet up and have us feeding him grapes. No, he loved in a way that gave. He gave himself to rescue us, to save his church in a sacrificial way. He won the church not by threats, not by fear, but by sacrifice. He left heaven, came to earth to be ridiculed, mocked, live in poverty, to be denied by so many, than to take the punishment of the world upon himself, not to a church that deserved it, but to a church that didn't deserve it. Sacrificially. This kind of sacrifice can be defined as the act of giving up something highly valued for the sake of something else considered to be of greater value to that person. Therefore, husbands are to love in a way that gives something up. They're giving something up to show that that person is more important, that wife. They're to love in a, a way that won't give up when times get hard, when times are frustrating. Uh, in a way that they're willing to wade into the garbage and the muck and mire of life to relieve a burden that is upon their wife. To love in a way that when times get hard as they do, they'll say, Lord, Your will be done in my life. And your will is for me to sacrifice for my wife and to stick with her and to be that man 
So I'm going to do it. It's my pleasure. It's a kind of love that says it's my pleasure to serve you. It's my pleasure to give my time to things that are important to you. It's my pleasure to plan for you. It's my pleasure to relieve the burden that is upon you. It's my pleasure to listen to you. It's my pleasure to pray for you. It's not just the kind of love that's willing to take a a bullet in some big glorious triumphant, oh, no. It's the kind of love that daily sacrifices endures sometimes hardship for the sake of that spouse. That is what he's calling us to. Second thing, verse 26. Husband is to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. A husband's love is to be a cleansing, a purifying love. You know, when Christ died for us, he didn't just sacrifice himself and leave it at that, did he? No. He rose and he promises to sanctify us, doesn't he? He nurtures us. He matures us. His, his, uh, his sacrifice for us just didn't end there. No, he says, I'm going to go further. I'm going to cleanse you and make you and and bring you into the image of yourself. And so a husband's life, a husband's love, doesn't drag his wife down, doesn't belittle her just to make her feel good, doesn't just need to say things to her so he can feel better about himself. No, no, it's a a kind of love that, that purifies her. It's that agape love that's the greatest cleanser in the human life. So, they commit to protecting her, not only from outside influences that would come in and, and, and pollute her life and pollute her mind and, and harm her body, so they protect her from the outside influences, but also from inside influences. A husband sometimes has to point out some stuff in his wife's life, and if she's humble enough to receive it, then it's a great thing. Just as a man needs to have things pointed out in his life, so... The man points out things in his wife's life that might be hurting her. But it's so much more than that. He's a spiritual leader. He leads her spiritually, meaning he takes an uh, uh, upfront investment in her spiritual well-being. So he reads his Bible. He speaks to his Lord. He, he takes the time to talk to her about what he's learning and takes the time to listen to her about what she's learning. They study God's word together. They pray together. He prays for her throughout the day. He wants her to spiritually be lifted up and strong in the Lord. There was a woman that I knew about, and this woman had been hurt, abused by mostly every man in her life, first by her father and her grandfather, unfortunately, and her uncle, and by other men in her younger days. Just about every man in her life had hurt her, and in a way, polluted her. She was full of anger and bitterness and resentment. And then she gave her life to Christ. 
And then God brought along a man in her life. And that man loved her sacrificially. And over time, she would say that the bitterness, the envy, the hate, all those things that had polluted her heart, because of his love, the love the Savior had for her, and the love of her husband, it's like it purified her. His love lifted her up so that she changed. That's the kind of love he's calling us to. Then verse 28, in the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. The husband's love is a caring love. See, see the, the husband doesn't look at the wife as some sort of servant. He looks at her as an extension of himself. She is him. They're the same. And so he cares for her as good or better than he cares for his own body. Think about all you do for your body, right? Or all we do as humans, right? We do a lot in North America, don't we? We, we clean ourselves, hopefully. We cleanse ourselves. We moisturize ourselves. Well, I don't, but some people do. We exercise we, we cover up blemishes, right? We feed ourselves. We clothe ourselves. Not just clothe ourselves, but clothe ourselves nicely. We massage ourselves when we're in pain, right? We do so much for our bodies. In fact, a person, if their life is at stake, will do anything and everything to save their own life. And so, the same sort of mindset is to be in the husband. He cares, nurtures his wife. He doesn't just look at her as something for him. No, 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 no. He is for her. And his desire is to care for her. You ever see a gardener like a serious gardener, like a good gardener, right? And, and they take that plant and it's just, it's delicate and, and they plant it in, they, they prepare the whole They've tilled the soil, and they put it in there. And every day, they're out there, and they're pulling the weeds that might harm it away, and they're providing water for it and providing food for it, and they're, they're cultivating the soil, and, and they're making sure it's getting plenty of light. And if it starts to, you know, sag over, then they pick it up and, and build supports for it, right? They're nurturing it. That's the way a husband is to be, to cherish his wife. And then he says in... Verse 31, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they will, the two will become one flesh. A husband's love is supposed to be unbreakable. There's, for this one reason, for this reason, notice he says that, for this reason, a man will leave his mother, his father and mother. It's not a man will leave his father and mother, but for his love of his bride, he will leave his father and mother and be joined together for his wife. We know, we know because we all have mothers, or we are, you are mothers, we know that a mother has an extra special attachment often to her children, right? Often it's more than the father, right? Because that child was at one time attached to the mother, right? Literally attached by the umbilical cord, living inside of the mother. 
And so at one time, they were joined together. And, and often, you know, mom is the nurturer and the, the one that's caring for the children growing up. But there comes a time, God says, for the sake of the marriage relationship, that all-important mother-child relationship needs to be severed. Not severed in that you don't honor and still keep a strong place for mom, but severed as the most important relationship in that child's life. And I've noticed, especially with sons, that when a son leaves the, the mother, the parents, and is married, there's often where's conflict. Where's usually the most conflict? The mother-daughter-in-law relationship, right? That's often the place of greatest conflict. Because often, mom has a real hard time with severing that relationship, that she's no longer number one. And I've noticed, just an encouragement to you fathers as your children grow up, I've, I've noticed that the mothers who have a solid husband, who isn't a, you know, a useless oaf, that, that is caring for her, that is sacrificing for her, those women often have an easier time with that transition than the one who doesn't have a good husband and their children become their all in all. There's often a lot more conflict with those kind of women. So husbands, you want to help her transition? Be that Christ to her. But, he says, for the sake of that relationship... You must sever. Sever for the sake of the marriage and make the wife the most important. The most important relationship in your life. Before your friends, before your work, before your mother, before your father, even before your children. Your wife is to be bonded together. And and the word uh, implies in the Greek joined implies like a welding together of two separate things welded together to become one. One in every aspect that a person could be, not just sexually, but in every way. And, and so much so that they are joined together, and if they were separated, you would actually rip them into pieces. And when you're going to weld something, well, you've got to increase the heat, Right? You know, weld two pieces of metal, you increase the heat, you, you intentionally apply heat to such a degree that the molecules inside of that metal actually change and bond together. And so marriage is very intentional. If you want to be bonded strongly to your wife, you, it takes intentional love. And as I say to people, you've got to keep the fire burning hot in the marriage and don't let things get cold, Right? Not just in that way, men, but in every way. And you got to be intentional. That means as much as you can, your life becomes one. Not in every aspect, but in many. Same bed, same bank account, same meal times, same bedtimes as much as you can, same friends, same church, same financial goals, same expectations for children. You get it. I took these... Two pieces of paper, Levi, my son, did. These are two pieces of paper, right? And I thought this would be more practical than getting a welding uh, torch and doing that on the stage and setting the stage on fire, right? These are two separate pieces of paper that my son glued together. Not as strongly as you weld two pieces of metal together, right? But they've been joined. So much show 
that to try and separate them is to destroy them. That is what the bond of a marriage relationship is supposed to be. That's the husband's love, that the husband is just intentional about his love, that they form that sort of relationship. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ in the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. A husband's love is to be in Christ. To be in Christ. By that I mean that the husband remembers, if he is following Christ, that Christ is there. He's witnessing this. He's witnessing the way he speaks to his wife, the way he treats her. It's in his presence. Not only in his presence, but it's in Christ's character. And so we talked about a few sermons ago that a Christian is to be an imitator of Christ. And so the the husband is actually like role-playing Jesus Christ to his wife. He's practicing Christ. So in his presence, in his character, by his governance. If he is, if Christ is the head of the man, then he remembers that he will be held accountable to the way he treats his wife. She is not an object. She is not something to be treated like garbage. She is a daughter of the Lord. And therefore, he is careful in the way he treats her. And to honor Christ. A husband's love is a reflection of what he holds valuable. And if he holds his Lord valuable, then he will honor his wife in order to honor his Lord. And your marriage, husbands, will demonstrate what is most important in your life. We're not perfect. Trust me, I am not. My wife is very gracious with me. And we are not going to be like Jesus ever. But if Jesus is our Lord, then we will give intentional, focused love. And our love, our marriage, will be either a gospel representation either a good gospel representation or a bad one, right? We can, we can say we're Christ followers and, and treat our wives like garbage and have a bad marriage, and, and we say to somebody, you really need to, to make Jesus your Lord, and he's just going to fix your life, and, and they know your marriage, and they're like, right, like the way he fixed your marriage? Mm, no thanks. Don't want anything to do with that. But when we make Christ our head, and when we make our marriage relationship our most important human relationship, that glorifies Christ. People look at that in a day and age we live in, just as they looked at it in 60 AD, and they're like, wow, what, what, what is going on with this marriage? I, I want to know more. And then you tell them about your Lord. So men, this is our commission. This is our love. Now, ladies, go back to verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Submit, respect, honor, all words that work together as the church submits to Christ's leadership, hopefully, we too begins to honor them, to respect them. Submission is not slavery. Submission is not tyranny. 
Submission doesn't mean that a male is superior to a woman. No, it just means for function's sake that God has said the husband is the head of the family. He is the leader. And therefore, in order for leadership to work right, it takes submission. It takes respect. It takes honor. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Notice the role is to submit. The husband's role is to sacrifice, to care for, to cleanse, uh, to, to in Christ honor. The wife's role is to submit, to encourage, to respect, to build up, to help him become the best leader he can. But the role is, to, uh, the, role is the goal, but the goal of the role is to serve the Lord. Notice that, as to the Lord. It's an act of worship. In other words, to put it plainly, when you honor and submit to your husband, even though he doesn't deserve it, even though he's imperfect, you're actually worshiping the Lord. And so that's your, when you don't feel like doing it, that's why you do it, because it's to the Lord. Wives, let me ask you, if Jesus invited you over or invited himself for a meal, like say he did for Zacchaeus, what would you serve Jesus? Like in physical form, he's coming to your house for dinner. Would you serve him a reheated store-bought pizza? Yes? No? Oh, somebody's shaking their head, no? Somebody was slowly shaking their head, yes? But that's okay. You'd probably serve him your best meal, right? Your best meal. You would take time and you'd really put all your effort into it and, and you'd serve him your best on your best dishes, right? And, and so... The way you treat your husband, the way you honor him, respect him, is, is, is like that. Either, yeah, he's not really important. I'll just do whatever I want. I'm not really going to honor him. It's 2021, 2022. We're progressive. Men can do, women can do anything a man can do and better. Right? You're either that, or the, Lord's, the Lord's sad. Or you're like, I'm going to love my husband and honor him and encourage him as an act of worship to my Lord. And some days you're going to say, want to say, husband, you're an idiot. I know some of you ladies want to say that sometimes. And some days you're going to think your husband has two IQ points less than a gorilla. But you're not going to say that. And, And ladies, we men know deep down, we know deep down, most likely we know deep down that we don't really deserve you this beautiful, wonderful person, and we're just, you know, smelly and hairy and sweaty and me. We don't really deserve you, and you're, you're a lot smarter than us most of the time, but you're not going to say that. You're not going to rub that in our faces. You're not going to jump on the 2022 feminist train. You're not going to do that because it's not honoring to your Lord, and it's not the design for marriage. But when you love and submit to us in our perfection, the Lord is glorified. And so when you don't feel like it, focus on the Lord. And there is a limit to that, yes. Notice that again, as to the Lord. There is a limit to all human uh, compliance or submitting to all human authorities. We are to submit to the Lord in everything because the Lord is perfect. He will never tell us to do something that is evil. Uh, But, you know, there are lots of places we are told to submit to humans, told to submit to human governments, told to submit to human laws, told to submit to your human boss, told to submit to church leadership, submit to a husband, children to submit to parents, 
But there's a limit to that, right? As unto the Lord. Does the Lord ask you to do anything evil, anything sinful? Anything that will like genuinely harm you? No, he does not. Sometimes you may not like what he is asking you to do, but it's for your good. And so if your husband is harming you or asking you to do sinful things, that is not what the Lord is asking you to do. That is not the sort of submission we are talking about. But sometimes the Lord tells us hard things. Sometimes the Lord rebukes us. And again, we need to be humble to receive that. And so, wives, I can tell you this. What your husbands need, what they are yearning for, what they are craving for is to be built up. In a generation that says men are useless, oafs that we don't need, they're Homer Simpsons, they're Al Bundys, what men are craving for is their wife to say, I believe in you. I love you even though you're imperfect. And I'm going to stand by you. So why isn't it happening? That's the question. That's the question I've wrestled with for years. As I have been a pastor these six years and I see, besides money, the constant big struggle in in people's lives, Christians' lives, is marriage. So why isn't it happening? Like, I don't think many people want to, you know, want to live in the Middle East and and be like a Muslim married couple. I don't think there's many people that want to do that. I don't think people, many people want to live in North Korea and be this married uh, communist couple. Like that's not good. I don't think many people want to live in India and be uh, these married Hindu people. So, so we're Christians and, and we know that the Lord has designed marriage and it's good because he designed it and it's for our welfare because he knows what's good for us. So why don't we do it? I've really, really wrestled with that over the years because there are not a lot of Christian, Western couples that I meet that are actually to the intentionally living out this Jesus in the church relationship. You know, top wife complaints I hear consistently. My husband won't lead me spiritually. He won't pray for me. He won't read the Bible with me. He won't talk to me about spiritual things. My husband doesn't make me feel like he cares for me. I'm secondary or third. After all his things are taken care of, then he has time for me. My husband doesn't appreciate what I do. He just, meh, whatever. It's your job, just do it. There's no appreciation. And my husband is reckless. He doesn't care for me as his own body. He's reckless. Top husband complaints I consistently hear. My wife has no interest in me sexually. My wife has nothing good to say about me. She just henpecks me all the time. Do this better, do this better. My wife doesn't appreciate me. She thinks she can replace me or I'm kind of semi-useless. And so I've been asking, Lord, and thinking about it, Lord, why is it this way? Why is it that uh, saved, Holy Ghost spilled, biblically savvy Christians don't seem to want to be doing this? And I have three Three ideas, three things that have been rolling around, three things I've been observing, and maybe you can see them in your life. The first one, you can fill in the blanks if you want, is that in the West, we are unappreciative. We are spoiled in the West. We don't appreciate or value marriage in God's design just to be how valuable God says it is because we're spoiled. And spoiled people, spoiled kids, you know, don't often appreciate something, right? So I'm going to tell you, and you know this, But for most of time, and still in most of the world, probably 80% of the world, life is very hard. Life is survival. Like every day, it's just 
hand to mouth, trying to get by. There's danger all around. And so the man gets up and he goes to a job and, and he's only going to make probably um, most of the world just enough to get by in the day and he works all hard all day and people take advantage of him, people cheat him and there's crooked police officers and, and, and there's persecution and, and it's dangerous, there's civil wars going on and drug cartels and so on and so forth. And, and he goes through this world and works really hard and then he comes home. But there's this woman there who loves him and appreciates him, and she has prepared something for him. In most of the world, this is the way it lives. Sorry to tell you guys. And, and, and she appreciates him. She's made him this meal, and, and she asks him about his day, and, and she, she gives him a shoulder rub, and, and she cares for him, so you know what? He so appreciates this woman. This is my wife. Mine. The world out there says I'm useless. I'm never going to get ahead. There's no retirement in most of the world. But I have this woman. And she loves me. And so he appreciates her. And ladies, again, for most of the women in most of the world, for most of time, life is very hard. You as a woman are vulnerable. There are wolves who will devour you. And so... The woman leaves her husband and if, uh, leaves her father. And if she is so fortunate to be in the home of a man who won't beat her and will love her and will leave and go and work in a thankless job to bring home food to provide for her and protect her from the wolves who would look to take advantage of her, oh, that's my man. That's my man. And I am going to love him and make him feel like he is my So making him a meal is not a big deal. Asking him about a day, rubbing his back is not a big deal. These things, this is why we don't appreciate it because we've got all these other things. We're spoiled. Number two, in the West we are distracted. We are so distracted. Even though we know as Christians this is the primary relationship, earthly relationship you're to intentionally put time into and invest into, we've got all these things distracting us careers and school and and tv and social media and and our kids and our friends and our hobbies and and the radio and and so on and so forth and shopping and and all of these things just distracting us taking our time from what god says is the most important human relationship you will have so we're unappreciative of just how important marriage is just how great it can be and we're distracted and third we are worldly Meaning, we have a concept or ideas about marriage that are just not what the Bible says it is. Whether it's from movies or TV or magazines or novels or social media or internet, we've got these ideas. And so we enter marriage with false ideas about what a Christian marriage is. False expectations that he can't live up to. Some of you think you're marrying Jesus. Guess what? You're not. You're marrying a man who's sinful. Some of you think you're, you're, you're marrying like You should be marrying the smartest, most beautiful, most perfect woman in the world. Sorry, you're not. You're marrying a sinful woman. And and so we are called to be the Jesus to each other. The woman plays Jesus by submitting to the will of the husband, just as Jesus submitted to the will of the father. And the husband plays Jesus by sacrificing and loving her. And by that, we change each other into the image of Christ. Christ changes us and works through us. And so, 
I end with, what about you? What about you, married people? Husbands, wives? Would you like it to be the way it was in 60 AD? Probably not. Would you like it to be the way it is in North Korea? Would you like to be the way it is in the world now where you have more of a chance when you get married of being divorced than staying together? None of us, I think, would say we want the way marriage is in the rest of the world. And so what are we going to do? What are you going to do? God offers you the chance. You can't change your spouse, but you can choose. You can choose by God's grace to embrace your role and allow God to work through you, just as these men did in 60 AD, these men and women did, in a town called Ephesus, where nobody was doing it, where nobody was supporting them, where it was exactly opposite to the way things were. You can still choose to do it. And God will honor you, and God will affect your marriage. God will change you. But you have to decide. It's up to you. And it's up to me. Love is a decision of the will with the hope that someday our emotions will follow. But it's a decision we have to make. And I want to be faithful to it more than I want to be even faithful as a father. I want to be faithful as a father. Even more than I want to be faithful as a pastor, I want to be faithful as a pastor. I want to be faithful as a husband. I want to be, genuinely, honestly, I think about the day I will die and when my breath, uh, chest is rising and falling its last few times and that the light in my eyes is dimming, I want to smile and know that I gave it my best as a husband. What about you? God is calling us to it. And I pray we will join him and the world will look and see and be amazed. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to call Cam up to lead us in communion. Lord Jesus, I love you, and I want to honor you by loving my wife sacrificially. And God, I pray that is the desire of the men's hearts that are here today. And Lord, none of us are perfect. We are mess-ups so often. But God, would you, by grace, give us the desire to be intentional about this. Give us the follow-through. Help us to make changes in our lives where we start to put our wives first. Lord, I pray for the, the wives in this room. Lord, it can be difficult to submit and honor and respect men who don't deserve it. But God, would you, by your grace, help them to do it as they serve you as an act of worship and give them such a love for these men, a love they've never had. Lord, I pray for those who are struggling now because they're not married to a believer. Lord, would you help them to demonstrate Christ every day, even though it's hard, even though they may never get recognition from their spouse on this earth, but God, you see and you will honor them. And Lord, I pray for those who are not married. Lord, either they're preparing to be married. God, would you give them wisdom about who they choose? And when they enter marriage, would it be for the right reasons and with the right intentions? And Lord, for those who are never going to be married again, would you help them to invest in married couples? So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.